Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday evening, and um, very kindly someone stepped forward to uh, uh, sponsor the Parsha and the Haftar this week. Very grateful. I wasn't sure what it would be. So I want to thank uh, tonight's uh, podcast about Parsha of the Week, which is, of course, about the Meraglim Shlach. Is being sponsored by the Goldbergs. That's uh, Edie and Lou Goldberg here in Baltimore. Uh, it's very nice because uh, they have yard sites coming up, I guess, in a week or two weeks. Seventh of Thomas and Ninth of Thomas, and they're moving it up to sponsor the talks today in the memory of the uh, loved ones. My mom is also the third of Thomas. <clears throat> so it's in there. And I'm reading there. She actually, from the same part of the world, uh, the first yard site is coming up. This is going to be in the seventh of Thomas. That'd be E.D. That her father. I'm sorry, uh, Alba Schwartz. He wrote to me. He's from Dobin Shmuel, a survivor from the Holocaust. I don't know what that is from Hungary, and, uh, and the Jews in Hungary, as you know, came in '44, and he was in the slave labor camps. Uh, I guess that's how he survived. And he and my mother-in-law, he said, went to Auschwitz, suffered a terrible, survived terrible experience. No, they ended up not only in slave labor but in Auschwitz. Auschwitz was labor as well as extermination. And they were married before the war. How about that? And they lost a four-year-old kid in the gas chambers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, after the war, uh, my wife, this is Lou writing to me, was born in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. There was no Czech Republic that time. My mother's when there was Czechoslovakia. And then he made it to Israel and finally to Connecticut. And so we're doing tonight's podcast in his memory. Next one will be in the memory of the other one. He was a kind, loving man the road who cared for his family and adjusted to the United States. You know, I'm sure the American audience doesn't even understand that. I <laughs> think it's easy coming here, even after the war, and, and trying to be normal in, in, in America. He always had good thoughts and good words for people, even though he struggled with his war experiences. Sounds a little bit like my father. Oh, it sounds a little bit like my father. All these people went through the war. I had it like that. And some should have an Aliyah. Um, so again, I thank you. The, uh, we're looking at Parsha Shlach. Uh, there's a very interesting Sparno. I just want to call your attention to for a moment, but uh, I'll concentrate on something else. I'm not sure I understand it entirely, but you know this is what's called a close reading of the Bible. The Sparno says, and when you look at the Carbonus um, after the Meraglim business, hey, let me get a Chumash and let me take a look at it. All right? Oh, oh, here it is. Right? So, we do all these carbonas. Offering. So, we have animal offerings and then flour and, and wine things. And, uh, so the Sfarnu observes, that um, the old way of doing carbonus was a little different than what uh, we're told to do now, I guess, after the Meraglim. It used to be, out of Egel, until the chet of the Egel, the golden calf, the carbon reich nichoach, that was the type of carbon that God desired, uh, did not involve mincha nesachem. Uh, Kenyan uh, Hevel, uh, Noach and Avrob. So this is just an interesting thing. If to read closely the... Um, Every time it says Nechomish in a story somewhere, or every time it tells you in the Tanakh a story somewhere, what kind of carbon it was and what exactly they offered up. This is the kind of thing that I zoom over, you zoom over. You know who goes into this in, in great detail in his way? The Ramot in his book Taurus Ola. He has a part of it that's really cool. And which goes through every mention of case in the Bible, Torah uh, Nebim even Ezra and so forth, and say if they talk about offerings. How many? What were they? Why were they? And all that sort of thing. Where And he tries to find symbols in all of them. And so the Sephardim is making the same point. If you look in the pre-Jewish, 
in the bracious type of carbonus, as he says over here, it was uh, just, uh, you know, the animal. They just offer up the animal with no extra stuff in him. But after the sin of the eagle is up, for some reason, they added to what you offer up every day, twice a day at least. In addition to the animal, you're going to have to have, um, uh, you know, flower offering of a certain sort, and the wine offering. So why the food component in addition to the animal? I mean, I, I suppose it sort of lends itself, I don't want to be too homiletical over here, uh, to the idea that, you know, the Jews... Um, when they did the eagle itself, it was too animalistic or something like that. Or maybe the eagle itself reminds you of an animal. Anyway, it was modified as a result of the eagle. And if you read closely, in this week's Pasha, after the sin of the Meraglim, then even the carbon that's brought not only by the seaboard, the carbon tummy every day, but the individual carbon that's brought by the, uh, the, the regular person, also requires not only the animal part, but also the flower part and the wine part. Like I said, if, if I let my imagination cool too well, I'll start being Baroque in 17th century. It won't sound good. But kudos to the ones that somebody sees and notices these, um, which means you have to pay a, a lot of attention, read very closely all these passages, which on the face of it would ordinarily seem kind of boring. Well, what exactly carbon was brought in this animal, that animal? And this flower thing and that flower thing. But clearly, this one is trying to indicate. And I'll tell you the truth. I'm pulling out over here the Cooperman and the Sverno. But the footnotes are endless. None of the patience for this. The, um, they don't look very helpful on this particular Indian. But maybe you want to take a look on Shabbos. Right? It seems to be, it's like a, a quid pro quo or something. The worse we got, the more you have to offer up, offer up in a carbon. The worse the Jews display themselves, the Egel, the Meraglim, and so on and so forth, the more they have to offer up. There's got to be some logic to it, rather than simply a tit-for-tat. But I think it's a very interesting thing to notice. But more broadly, obviously, the big story is that Meraglim, especially when you and I consider this in light of current events, because they're just having a war going on in Israel with Gaza, and who knows if it's going to uh, blow up again. It's impossible to tell with the international political situation and the political situation within the state of Israel, which seems to me to be dysfunctional at a distance, but whatever. And um, you know what strikes me? The Kalev story. I talked about it in my latest class this morning. Um, they're all famous. Um, let me put it this way. The Rambam famously says in his 13 uh, principles that you're, um, that you're not supposed to go to Uman. You know, uh, how do you, in the short, dumb version that we say every day, Ani Mamin, Shabori, Sparach, Lolavada, Royalist, Paul, Vains, Deloso, Royalist, Paul. You don't pray to anybody else. Um, only only to God. Now, most people are logical, and they say, I like that. On the other hand, we have a lot of intermediary type literature within Judaism, whether you like it or not. There's an extensive angelology of one sort or another. And this has always created uh, certain controversies and tensions among those who are more philosophically consistent and rigid versus those who are more loose-goose. Uh, like I mentioned before, you know, some people don't say, because what do you mean? You want to be blessed by angels. Heck with the angels. You want to be blessed by God. Angels have no power of their own. You see? Angels have no power of their own. Angels just expression to give an idea of something coming from God. No angels flying around with the wings. And yet... Most people, I mean, I say it, you know, I think they've only gone, it, it doesn't bother me, you know, I don't necessarily say the angel is going to his own, going to bless me, but you hear the voice. Uh, similarly, um, remember Machnisi Rachman, all the fights about that with the Slichas, Machnisu, Rachmanu, Dimosinu, Fnikisi, cover whatever the expression is, used to be a whole polemic about that long ago. Why are you? And by the Slichas, why are you saying appealing to angels, Machnis Rachim? Uh, I don't want to Machnis Rachim. When I daven, God is everywhere. If he can hear my prayer. I do need anybody carrying my prayer before the, any heaven leaves Rome. And so uh, it's a little bit blasphemous if you want to be, again, philosophically very, extremely, um, what's the right word, consistent and, and rigid. <clears throat> On the other hand, most people aren't bothered by that. It's the expression. 
You know, what I mean expression? I don't know. It's expression in the sense that, you know, trying to poetically convey something. Um, but those who don't like, you know, we had an accident at Maroon. Those who don't like Maroon, especially they don't like Uman, they say, what are you going to there for? Uh, you know, what's the expression? Um, now you tell me, well, when you go to a Kever, you're not davening to the Nifter. Yes and no. <laughs> In other words, the person who's very thoughtful doesn't, but a lot of people do, you know, if you want to be honest about it. People go, Nachum Bressler, they'll say, put in a word for me, you know. <laughs> Come on. Even we use the expression, he should be a male right? You know, you can't, you can't help it. Uh, now, the Maimonidians have always been, oh, no, you can't do that sort of thing. And it's also, however, as we all know, I'm sure you know this, in this week's Parsha, Kalev runs to the Mars Machpel in the famous story that they tell in the Agadita, uh to pray not to be swayed by the uh, counsel of the other ten spies who are going to give a negative report about Israel. Which is this very interesting, right? Um, because what it means is, it's very hard to go against the consent of the collective. You get it? We Jews are feeling this right now with the new war in Israel with the with the um, Gaza Strip and around the world, in which people are being attacked verbally and physically um, for being pro-Israel, not being pro-Arab. The Arab rhetoric and rhetoric of their supporters, black and white and green and yellow, Israel's illegitimate, they got to be done away with. They're trying to create, and they are creating, I'm sorry to say, a new uh, mainline message, a woke message, which Israel doesn't have the right to exist. We see this in front of us. And Jews aren't able to resist this. And, uh, you know, what I mean is, a guy, a girl, from, not especially not from, on, on college campus, at many workplaces, you got to go along. It's hard to resist this constant pressure. This is how they push these woke and other messages in our society. They've been doing it for a long time. And the internet and these other things, you know, the, the, the Facebook, the TikTok, and all the other junk, just magnifies the effect of this. And it's hard... To resist. Uh, being a Jew, from Jew especially, means you have to swim against the stream. Uh, a lot of people don't feel comfortable swimming against the stream, especially if people standing on the side of the river and throwing things and shouting at you and cussing you out. I remember reading once, maybe it was a Louis Jacobs book, who was he talking about? Couple Rosen, I believe, if I remember correctly, who was a famous Orthodox rabbi in England back in the 50s. He died young back in the 40s and 50s. And he gave a bar mitzvah speech in which he said that there's a certain fish in the Gemara that says that if you want to know if it's kosher or has fins and scales, uh, the question is, uh, does it swim up upstream against the river? And, uh, you know, he said homiletically, to be a kosher Jew, you got to be able to swim against the river. That's a nice word for a, a bar mitzvah in England in 1950, but it's easier said than done. It's hard to go against all the overwhelming messages you hear and I think many people, even many people listening to this podcast, are swayed by this sort of thing. And I'll tell you what I mean. It, if it, it, I always have my system of reading the Chazals. <clears throat> if we have a story, as you all know, that there were 12 spies, and they all formed the consensus that we cannot take this place. They're too strong for us. We've got to get out of here. Um, and the two spies disagree with them. And the two spies... Joshua and Kalev were able to maintain their disagreement with them. So, how did these two spies manage to withstand the pressure? So, Kalev went to David the Mars Machpelo, and Yehoshua, they say, gave a special blessing from Moses. That's what called Sheh Benun Yehoshua. So, like we say today, went to the Ger Rebbe, to Belzer Rebbe, right? Lubavitcher Rebbe. I got news for you. Moshe Abinu was bigger than Lubavitcher Rebbe. Even Lubavitcher will tell you that, I think. So, um, he got a bracha. Koho shiachem atzis maragam. You get it? Okay. So if you've got a special bracha, and I don't mean this to be funny, if you got a special bracha from a Sadiq, let's say a guy got a bracha from the late Lubavitch Rebbe, or somebody like that. Okay. Okay, you got a bracha. That helps you. But it means a regular shnuku doesn't have a bracha, ain't going to work. So if you tell me that Joshua and Kalev were able to do it because they had uh, supernatural help, then that's very depressing because it means in the absence of supernatural help, there's no way to withstand the pressure to conform to the rest of the group. And the rest of the group said, We can't beat them. 
You know this, right? Now, um, the point I was making was, this doesn't work according to the Rambam. The Rambam said, you don't go to the cavern of Davin. It's like going to Nachum Breslau. <gasps> Excuse me, Nachum Breslau. No, see, Nachum Breslau is right. There is a tradition in Judaism of going to Davin by the Kvarim. You know, that's been a, a, a locus classicus within that controversy. You can't say it's not Jewish. Kolov did it, right? Now, the fact that, and, and incidentally, it's a very nice a picture. Um, Joshua got a, a bracha from the Rebbe, so to speak. What did Kolov do? You know, so Joshua was a chassid, but Kolov was a misnagah. So what did, what did he do? He didn't get a bracha from the Rebbe. Moshe didn't get, didn't get my bracha. Uh, but he said like this, I'll go to the cave of us, meaning I have to throw myself back on the Jewish tradition. Uh, for most people today, to be able to stand all the political uh, the pressure to conform and come out against Israel, say, oh, I feel bad about the Palestinians and the right to shoot at Israel. Everything's Israel's fault, etc., etc., etc. All the junk that you hear all the time. And believe me, if you're in a workplace, especially if you work for the government or the city or this and that and the other, there's a lot of situations out there that you can't simply sit here and smirk listening to a podcast and say, you should tell them what for. It's hard. You know what I'm saying? It's hard. And um, like Khalif, uh, the only thing to do is you have to find the internal fortitude. The only way you find the internal fortitude is to throw your back yourself back on, on on the tradition if you have that you get it? if you have that um if you have a tradition to fall back upon calling falls back upon um as we would say the ovos the mohos he says in a time when the pressure to conform is overwhelming i i literally go to afrimitsa giacob i literally go to sara and rifka and leah and i invoke their memory Right? Now I'm giving it a rational interpretation, but it doesn't matter. What do you mean I'm invoking their memory? When I invoke their memory, I draw strength. Right? From the thought of who these people were, I draw strength. That's what Joseph did when he was about to succumb to Potiphar's wife, right? You know, he says, Is that to be understood simply as a magic uh, phenomenon? That because he got this picture, his Yetzirah went away? Or do you say he drew strength from considering the heroic ancestors that he had, and this inspired him to try to emulate their heroism in spite of all the difficulties involved. I think it's the second, at least. Let me put it this way. In this year, that's the interpretation that appeals to me. So you call him, threw, him back on Jew, threw himself back on Jewish history. He said, I'm going to the oldest Jewish site, which at that time was the Mars Machpelah, agreed? There was no Jewish site in Eretz Israel at that time. Obviously, it's before the Jews came there. Obviously, it's before the base of Migdash and all that sort of thing. What was the Jewish site in the land of Israel? It's the Mars Machpelah. Don't you agree? Mars Machpelah. Now, um, he was able, you know, to, to uh, what's the right word, find uh, sustenance and to go against the crowd, as we all know. They're all screaming one way, and he says, all over, not all over Yerushalayim, so we can do it. Now, it's very strange. I want you to understand. Last week, did I do, did I do this last week? I don't remember. Last week, Beloschov, the Jews, um, march off from Mount Sinai. Uh, that's why he been so running and all that. The Jews march off from Mount Sinai. Now, um, they march to the Negev Desert, and that's where you have the the, the incident of the um, of the spies. I think many people um, think, I used to, that, you know, they were at Har Sinai, then they went a little bit ahead, but they're still deep in the Sinai Peninsula somewhere, and Moshe dispatches the spies way ahead of him, and the spies come back, and everybody freaks out and says, we don't want to, you know, be part of this, right? We want to be part of this. And uh, actually, the dates are kind of funny. One minute. <clears throat> Hi. Yeah, I just pulled out a Shulchan Aruch. I thought I saw something here. You know, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I was talking about uh, the different dates and uh, of historical events that happened during this week from Tav Kuf Pei in the Shulchan Aruch, chapter 580 in Archaim. And um, it's strange because, um, among other things, he talks about the Maraglim slightly. And he says that there was a custom to fast on Shibasar um, Be'el. Mesu Motsi Dibas Arts. 
that the Meraglim, the ones who brought Lashonar against Israel, had died on um, the 17th of El, which is kind of strange. I'm just looking at the Meraglim over here. Uh, and the reason I say it is because we all know the story that um, they, Tishabov, correct? One of the things that Tishabov is supposed to, supposed to commemorate is the Meraglim, when they're told they won't get, get back into Israel. So, uh, everybody perished in the desert. You made a Bechia Shalchinam, I'll give you a Bechia Lodovus. I think everybody is familiar with that. So, what exactly is going on over here? The um, It says that the uh, spies themselves, you know, died like a, a month later or something like that, approximately. The 17th of El, or the 7th of El, according to some. What is that? And uh, it goes to show you um, that it was a big controversy going on over there. And it seems not to have been settled right away. Now, I see the Beis Yosef and the classical rabbinic commentators try to resolve this sort of dialectically, come with a terrorist. If you're interested, you know, those of you looking for unusual Zvartor this week, take a look at Shulchan Aruch Tafkov Pei and the Be'er Hagola, you know, on the side. And he says, what do you mean they died? That's the question I just raised. What do you mean that the spies died when, um, a month later? Um, should have died right away on um, Tishabov and so forth. And he says, Anshan Hoya Miyad that their tongues uh, fell out or something like that. So this is a dialectical terrorist. They got real sick right away, but it took them a month to uh, to, to die. So basically, they had a, a, a bitter end uh, with a tongue disease, and that's because they uh, spoke Lashon Har against Israel. You know, why are we mourning over this? They didn't get a chance to repent or something like that. Repentance was not um, accepted. That's a little dokic, sounds to me. Uh, sounds more that, you know, major controversy raised. A lot of people, it sounds like, um, sided with the Meraglim. In other words, they're convinced they're right. It took a lot for Kalev and Yeshua to disagree. Um, as we know the story, they themselves found tremendous pressure. Kalev dealt with, as I just said before, by throwing himself on the past, uh, on inner reserves. Uh, he was able to withstand the pressure, as we all know. Uh, in the end, the whole incident in Raglam happened. Uh, now, obviously, it, it's almost superfluous for me to say that Kalev was right, but I want to point out something. Uh, the, spy, the spies, had they listened to them, they were on the verge of entering Israel. I mentioned before that they got to Midbar Paran. If you look on maps, that's basically the northern Negev, something like that. So if I have my calculations right, the Jews marched from Mount Sinai, which I assume is somewhere in the southern Negev area. I'm sorry, in the Sinai Peninsula, southern Sinai Peninsula area, you know, something like that. And they marched forward to um, the northern Negev, shall we say. Doesn't seem to me to be too far away from the bottom Gaza Strip, or maybe from Beersheba. So on the entrance of Israel. And uh, and they had the Arun of Salif Nahum and so forth. So their mom was there. You know, you could walk north and be in Israel without too much time. And at that moment, he sends out spies, which supports the theory of those Mepharshim, who was it, the Malbim or somebody, whoever it is, that says that Moshe simply sent them out as a military tactical matter. You know, that's some Mepharshim go that way. Hachazaku, Arofa. No, we're going to fight, just what's the most intelligent way of fighting? That's in some Chalonese when it comes to wars. I, the whole march in the desert with some Chalonese, I get it. But still, you don't want to walk your men into a into a trap. It's it's uh, extremely dangerous and a big no-no to conduct a war without any um, intelligence, you know, without any spies or intelligence beforehand. Uh, information is extremely important in the battlefield. I don't care who you are. Um, so that's what Moshe did. So again, I repeat, they marched the whole Jewish people up to Midbar Parm, and uh, you're not too far away from entering Israel. 
and they send the spies, they didn't know that the spies would come back and say, uh, run for your lives, it's impossible. Uh, they didn't know the spies would fall for, um, what's the right word, for terrorism. Uh, terrorism is, is always a, 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 a mind game, you get it? Like Israel's fighting terrorists. Israel's an A-bomb, H-bomb. Uh, but the terrorists attempt over and over again to get into the minds of the Jews and terrify them. That will force countries to yield. Um, what do you call it? How did this country lose the Vietnam War? Uh, how did the French kick out of Algeria? They were able to get to the mindset of the people. They say it's unwinnable. And once you do that, it becomes unwinnable. Um, this actually, if you want to be sophisticated, was Hitler's uh, plan for World War II. How's he going to defeat the United States, Russia, and, and, and uh, England? They're too big. His plan was give a big defeat to the Americans. Uh, that'll cause anti-war sentiment in the United States, and America will pull out. Uh, you know, it makes sense. Now, here the spies came back, and he said, oh, they're like giants. You know the story, like I know the story. B'nai, Shamra, Eno, B'nai, Anagman, Anafilim, and so forth. It's, it's impossible. So he fell for the mind games. The irony, of course, the supreme irony is that in the Haftorah today, which is about Rachel Vazona, with the two spies, she says, we're scared out of our minds, right? She said, when we heard you cross the Red Sea, something like Vanimus Lovavain or something like that, they're scared. And so each side is scared of the other, and each one is feeding on its own fears. It's a fascinating psychological story. The spies are feeding on their own fears, and they're freaking out. And, uh, you know, each one is afraid of the other. I mentioned this morning, uh, one of the interesting books of American history is the uh, memoirs of General Grant, Ulysses S. Grant. It's uh, considered a classic of American literature, even though it's all about the war. And you don't have to be a war buff to read Grant as a great writer. Now, it's 19th century style writing, but he's very good and extremely lucid. And I remember it's one of the many, many, many famous stories. He says when he was the beginning of the war... And he led his first, uh, at his first command. Remember, Grant had been a major loser, and a schlepper beyond belief. And then the war came; he became a general. And he had his first command, or a brigade, or whatever it was. And they're supposed to go, if I remember correctly, down the Belmont, which I think was in the southern Illinois border with Chase, uh, Missouri, or someplace like that. And he's going towards the Confederates. And he said, "The closer he got, the more scared he got. A, a battle's coming." But he forced himself to go weiter. And when he came there, he saw the Confederates had run away. And he said, I hopped something. They're scared of me. I'm scared of them. But they're scared of me too. Don't ever forget that. Is the other guy's not a Superman. Uh, this is this is the big yesod to my mind to take away from Parsha Shlach, especially at this time in our history when we're facing in Israel and elsewhere these massive assaults on mind games they're trying to freak the Jews out and say, and they're succeeding with American Jews. You have the backbone of a, of a chocolate eclair. And they're succeeding in saying, oh no, you stay here, you're going to get massacred, wiped out. The only thing to do is it, people should give up Israel and move back to America. You know, uh, and then you avoid the, the, the worst of it. Really? Really? There's a natural uh, tendency on the part of people for panic. Uh, I remember when I was a little kid, I was in one of these. Uh, Ferris wheels or something like that. It's a sort of Ferris wheel in Atlantic City, New Jersey, way back in the days when Atlantic City was Atlantic City. And, you know, I had like an irrational desire just to jump. Now, <laughs> fortunately, I didn't. But, you know, people have that. I, I, I understand people have that. That's what you had over here by Morocco. That irrational fear that this is just beyond us. Now, the reason I say it is, empirically, when they went into Israel a few years later, not led by Moshe, but by Joshua, they won. Uh, wherever they went, they won. I'm not saying it was a walkover. Some places it was a walkover, and some places not. But they won. So in other words, the Canaanites were not this supreme, uh, unbelievable, powerful group and, so, and all the rest of it. It's a Chayngeret. You know, they convinced themselves that that's the case. And therefore it was the case. So it's an amazing case of a panic attack. I want you to think, understand what I'm saying. The Jews marched up to not far from Beersheba. And their mom said the borders of Israel, 
and they and they sent spies. And this, when the spies came back, they said like this: "We got to go back and be slaves in Egypt." It's unbelievable. We got to go back and be slaves in Egypt. You got to the doorstep over here. Forget the religious Cyrus. You got to the doorstep over here. Uh, you built yourself up something, and now you're going to go back and retrace your steps and go back to Egypt. It's 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 like the person wanting to jump from the Ferris wheel, but you know the panic hit them, and uh, and the panic hit the old Jewish people. Doesn't say something like Vayivku Kol Hoid or something like that. A panic attack hit the people, and Vayivku um, they cried, and God was angry at the panic attack, especially when God realized, of course, that the enemy is in panic attack, like Rochav said. So you have almost like a comical scene. If somebody was making a movie, they have a split screen. On the one hand, you see the Israelites. On the other hand, you see the Canaanites. And on the right-hand side, you see the Jews going, Oy vey, voices, wo woe to us. And then you look at the other side, they're saying the same thing. Oy vey, woe to us. And it's ridiculous. But such is the power of uh, mass hysteria. And such is the power of popular culture. When, when a message gets out there, like as what they call today, the PC, the woke, and all the rest of it, it just sweeps everything in front of it, and nobody has the power um, to withstand it. Actually, you do have the power, but everybody feels that they don't have the power to withstand this. If I say this at work, I'll lose my job. If I say this over here, I'll get in trouble. If I say this over here, I'll get in trouble. Someone won't say anything. Instead of saying, don't make the fight. Uh, that's why it's funny to me, uh, you know, uh, uh, here in America, who was it I saw in the news, you know, like you saw, Bill Maher, one of these type of people, he's making the case for Israel. It reminds me back in 2014. Do you remember this? All the Jews went into a panic. Same thing happened in 2014. And um, uh, the Jews couldn't respond. And the Arabs and the Muslims in America and all these other groups, the Black Lives and this, that, and the other, they're all saying Israel's this, Israel's that. And the Jews didn't really respond. And I remember it was Howard Stern and the Joan uh, Rivers, I think it was. Something like this. This is what we're falling back on. Of all the people... They had the nerve to talk back to the anti-Israel guys and say, you're all full of it. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And they didn't have what Joshua had and what Caleb had, which is, you know, the fallback on the Zuchus of us. So, um, to my mind, it's a very powerful parsha in terms of the um, of the contemporary reality. Uh, as I said, we know what the contemporary reality was because a few years later they went and defeated them. Okay? And uh, they could have wiped out all the Canaanim. They just got lazy. I mean, that's, that's what happened. If you read the book of Yoshua closely, at the beginning of the book of Shoftim closely, they could have done it and they didn't do it. Okay, whatever happening over there. But it wasn't that they were over facing overwhelming force. You understand? It wasn't that they were afraid of being swept into the sea. It was just that they could only do 50%, 60%, something like that. Um, psychology is so powerful. Jews, I guess it's true of every group, <laughs> but we Jews seem to have a particular weakness for this kind of a panic attack, and that's what Parsha Shlach is all about. And that's what Parsha Shlach is all about. Um, and Moshe couldn't stop it. Right? Moshe couldn't stop it. Which is why God wants to kill everybody, and then he has, Moshe has to sort of plead, plead his way out of it. Now, it's, in the light of all that, it's just interesting they say that the spies didn't die for a month. Now, uh, and the, and when they died was declared a fast day once upon a time for those who keep those obscure fasts, which most of us do not do. Beshiva Sarbel or Beshiva Bell, Mason Motsias, Divasaris. So, Tishabov, when the spies came back and gave the report, Tishabov, the panic attack hit everybody. Uh, Joshua and Kali, you know, tried to hold everything back. They at least represented a different point of view. Uh, a lot of people start dying, it says. And uh, apparently, the long this business wasn't over for a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. See, so poor Moshe, trying to everybody, go, everybody to go forward. And, you know, God is saying everybody will die in the desert as a result of all this. I'm not 100% sure how all this stuff exactly works. You know something? Let me take a look at the state of for a second. Hi. I had to go down the um, I'm saying I'm pulling out the... Uh, what do you call it? The um, Seder Olam, for a reason. It says that these people died about a month later or something like that. What exactly is the story in this week's Parsha of the Magomet, chronologically? 
The trouble is, you got to coordinate two accounts. One, of course, as we know, is here in this week's parsha Shlach. The other one is when Moses recounts the whole thing in um in the beginning of um, Devarim. Isn't that right? The very beginning of Devarim, which is of course almost forty years later, Moses tells the whole story all over again, right? And what it says in both cases is that um, you know, the people cried, and God said, "You're going to die." And Moshe talked him out of it. But Hashem says, a little bit. Um, uh, these people all die in the desert. Okay? So it's pronounced that they all die in the desert, the Dora uh, Midbar. <coughs> but then he goes on to say to Moshe, Machar, tomorrow, the day after Tishabah, two days after Tishabah, whatever. Hit the road. Um, the spies are not dead yet, right? According to the tradition. You'll have to leave this place. Uh, I'm reading in the Arya Kaplan. Tomorrow you will have to leave this place and strike out into the desert toward the Red Sea. Ah, so in the northern Negev. And now that they got to go south um, towards Eilat, shall we say. When it says the Red Sea, it means the Gulf of Aqaba, or the Gulf of Eilat, as we call it today. And similarly, <coughs> um, when you get to the uh, Book of Dvarim, it also says, Your children will survive, but, but, but this generation will not. This is Pasuk Memalaf, beginning of Dvarim. And hit the road. And go down to Derech Yamsuf. Okay? So, what is the story? The Jews march from, I want to get this clear. The Jews march from um, Sinai to, you know, like I said, somewhere uh, west of Beersheba, approximately, or southwest. To be perfectly honest, if I calculate it right, I think it's like a little north of Mitzvah. So, this is going to sound funny. Somewhere where Ben Gurion's house was. And stay book here. That's where the Jews got the Moroccan business, as far as I can tell. And then, since they showed themselves unworthy, so God says, turn around. You're on the doorstep of Israel, and it would have been five minutes they would have been in Israel, and instead, in a crazy business, they got to turn around. And what exactly happens then? So I opened up in front of me the say roll, and a good one from the Weinstock edition, which has all those nice notes. He did a lot of homework years ago. He was a mechanic in Israel, I believe. And at the bottom, he says over there, you know, after the, the, uh, the what do you call it? Seder Om gives you the basics, which is Chav Tes Sivon, Shalch Moshe Esmeraglim, Yom, and so on and so forth, you know. So uh, he says over here, V'yachar B'yas Esmeraglim, after Esmeraglim showed up, Nitztavu, V'atu, Atem, Penu Lechem, Usim, Edbar, Derech Yamsu, Hainu Letzad, Dharma, Olab, Go southward, towards Kodesh Barnea. Now, I think Kodesh Barnea is north of this, but whatever it is, he's saying to go south. This Rabbi Weinstock. The Kodesh Barnea, Yoshu Yisrael, Tisha Sarshan, Riblin Yasius. When they go south in Kodesh Barnea, which should give you somewhere in the Neg- lower Negev, southern Negev, uh, I think others would say Kodesh Barnea is a little north of that, somewhere in the Negev, they spend 19 years. So, isn't that crazy? It's like those ships that Roosevelt wouldn't let in in, the, in World War II. You know what I mean? The St. Louis and others. They got up to the shore. They mamas see everything, but they're not allowed in. They're not allowed in. So these Jews are stuck in one place, not far away from Israel, near Israel. Uh, were any of them tempted to, you know, try to make it their way up? Well, that's, that's the Mapilum story, more or less, right? They're so close by Apilum. But I'll leave that out, out, out of this podcast. And they spent 19 years in Halolu, and after 19 years, then I think Matas Mase, you know, then they start going uh, on their on their marches, which take you south to the um, Elad, and then north again, uh, more or less up what we call Jordan, that side. So those, instead of going up straight through the Negev, they're going to go more more or less towards the Dead Sea, and then to the turn to the right towards Jordan. Okay, so altogether you get 38 years. So they weren't Vosbol and Nachal Zered. When they come to Nachal Zered, that'd be right at the bottom 
uh, of the Dead Sea. So they're spending these 38 years, 19 and 19, according to this, um, what shall I say, um, you know, in one place and then marching around place to place throughout the Negev. Now, the Pasha shot is the God was going to march them out till they died. But why didn't he just kill them right then and there or make them a gay for or whatever? It's a strange story. Here comes something interesting. This is just my opinion. Uh, you know, as a guess, I could be wrong. The Rambam says somewhere, I think in the morning of Bukham, that the idea behind marching them all over the place in the desert, the, the, the Masos, was to toughen them up, like a boot camp. Now, we have generally, I always like to say, two sets of narratives when it comes to many stories in the particularly what happened to the Jewish people in the desert for 40 years. For example, on the one hand, we hear the story that the mon tastes like whatever you want. On the other hand, you see the people say, we can't stand the tofu anymore. Nachshenu cuts of alechem a klokel. So it sounds like the mon does not taste like anything you want. It tastes has a very specific taste, and they got sick and tired of it for breakfast, lunch, and supper, day after day, year after year. Similarly, on the one hand, there's an account that the Jews marched through the desert, surrounded by the clouds, that's the sukkah stuff, the anonim, the anonim covered, and protects them from the sun, the heat, from the akravid, from the scorpions, and so on and so forth. There's another account that one of the Arons that traveled did that job. And yet, later on, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Oh, remember you went through the desert? I remember this. You probably do also. We had a tough time going through the desert, right? So it sounds like it was Mamash a desert march. And if you've ever been in negative those areas, it's rocky, it's it's difficult. It's not posh at all to go in there, uh, you know, time after time without good shoes, as they say nowadays. Now, they didn't have basketball shoes, you know. Now, wait a second. On one end, you tell me they had a smooth thing that the Anonymous or the Aron used to, you know, flatten the mountains and so forth. And now you're telling me that it was hard and tough. I think, based on this foreigner that we just read at the beginning today, things, this is, this is my guess. Maybe somebody says it. Maybe I'm just saying Ramus and some uh, well-known uh, shot. But I think that uh, what happened is you have to, um, how should I put it, divide all the accounts, B.C. and A.C., or better yet, uh, before the Meragum and after Meragum. Just like the Sparna says they changed the rules of the Carbonus after Meragum. So I think once the Meragum story happened, so it indicated, like I said before, a panic attack, a, a um, psychological problem that cannot be overcome um, because the same people if they're freaking out when they see the uh, Canaanites uh, then when they come to battle later on it'll be the same thing and even if they were able to conquer the land the next time they have a war with somebody right, the next time they have a war with somebody they're going to freak out look at Book of Shoftim you know, they got invaded from time to time this happens in the Middle East it's not only the Gaza War Midian Amov, Moav, member Eglamelch, Moav, and so forth. You know, and part of the life over there is you have to be able to withstand uh, invasions. Can you imagine if they had this mindset when, uh, what's his name, Cicero, the other guy, they panicked the Jews would, would bolt and they push a fleet of country, which is, I tell you, what the Arabs are trying to do today. The Iranians, particularly, a bunch of real monsters, they're very clever. I, wa- I try to watch what they're saying and I see they're very deliberately working on the mind game, man. So, uh, the older generation, therefore, is incorrigible. What I'm saying is, even if they would invade the country and beat the Canaanites, they would get scared from something else. So it's inbred in them. So you have to outbreed it. And so the Rambam, I think, says, and he's not the only one, I'm sure, but I remember it in murder with him, that he had to have like a boot camp. They had to march around and toughen them up in the desert. That's the muscles of the younger generation. Oh, so what it means is like this. Up to the Meraglam, you had the Anonim blowing everything up and making life easy. After the Meraglam, you don't. And indeed, the harsh measures probably killed off the old Darwinian survival of the fittest. The older guys, the older women, the older people, that was the door, what we call the Dorham Midbar. And the young ones grew up, you know, uh, from youth, uh, getting used to this kind of tough environment. You know, like your Bedouins, you know what I'm saying? And you just get used to the heat, and you get used to the to the travel, and used to the hardships. And so by the time Moshe died, uh, they spent 19 years in one place, but then they marched around 19 years. By the time Moshe died, they're a fighting force. Matter of fact, you saw that when he fought Sihon and Og. So it uh, could be the same thing, by the way, with Demon.
maybe until the Maragam, it tasted them untasted great like everything. And then afterwards, it didn't. Now, it's true, last week, Baloscha, they're already complaining. It's not 100% clear, but it seems to me that one way of resolving these different accounts is chronologically. Maybe. Maybe. That's what it sounds like. If that's true, consider the following. And with this, I'll conclude. So the spies said, you can't make it. We're doomed if we go. And the spies were successful in the degree that the Jews did not invade Israel. In the battle between Moses and the spies, the spies win. Uh, because uh, they don't simply proceed forth and conquer the country. Now, um, which is sad. As they marched away, uh, it becomes pretty clear they're not returning to Egypt. And so every step they take is toward deeper into the desert. It's true that they're not going to be fighting the Canaanites, but they're not going where they wanted to go. And so this must have made the spies feel crazy or, or look weird or something like that. And if God arranged it that they should only die a month or so after the incident of Raglan, maybe Hashem wanted it that they should be thoroughly discredited by the time they died. Because then you didn't go back to Egypt and have an easy life. Instead, they're marching around the desert and they're going to come to a place and just stop there forever. 19 years. Uh, people are going to start talking, I imagine, I'm guessing. People start talking when they're there for 19 years. We're stuck in this stupid place, Kodesh Barnea. If not for the fact that we blew it, we could be in Israel by now. You get it? They're not going to say, oh, how lucky we are that we avoided that fight with the Canaanites. And now we're stuck in the middle of the desert, you know, totally dependent on God with the mon and the water and all the rest of it, surrounded by uh, nothing but desert and desert. And uh, if I'm right, it's hot. Like Moshe said, Simona Shanlin Chamayim. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I forget the expression, you know, harsh, harsh rocks and things like that. You know, it's a speech that Moshe gives uh, somewhere in the beginning of the war. And so it, it, it was basically a, a boot camp, a tough course, and the uh, spies look worse and worse. So by the time they expired, um, they become discredited. Had Moshe killed them right away, this is what I think. If they would have died right away, uh, except not like a month later, and people might say like this, you know, they're kind of a martyrs. They tried telling the honest truth, and a jealous and angry God killed them, or Moshe killed them, or who knows what kind of rumors would go around. But they were basically right. It was necessary that they should be discredited, that their message should be seen as incorrect, in order for the Jews to be able to get the courage later on to go forward. So by the time Moshe dies, people say, yeah, my father, my grandfather, they're part of the old generation, but, you know, they didn't have what it takes, that's all. It's not that they saw it and they gave an intelligent report. They panicked. We're not going to panic. They panicked. You understand? You know, they were slaves. You know, they were slaves. Whatever explanation you want to give to explain it, and people do that, but their parents, their grandparents, all the rest of it, which I totally get. But at the end of the day, you know, they weren't right. It's necessary to have that kind of mentality if you want the younger generation to have the Chazak the, the to go ahead and do so. So look at the great emphasis um, giving over here in this interpretation on the mental state, on the morale. Uh, that is everything in a country. That's what you really have to worry about with these. I'm not worried about the Arabs coming in and breaking up um, restaurants in L.A. That's bad, of course, right? But I'm, I'm worried about the Arabs getting to people's minds. And we all are like that to some degree or another. And we have to learn from the Parshish Shlach not to be like that. Uh, it's easier said than done. I do understand that. You know, I'm, I'm not aware of that. But the truth is the truth, no matter where it's coming from. And whatever, and no matter what location it's it's being said in. You see? And uh, it, was all, it was a mind game. Uh, the Canaanites defeated Moshe Rabbeinu. I'll say it again. The Canaanites defeated Moshe Rabbeinu uh, by mind games. They look powerful. They put on a big act, uh, you know. They look stark, and 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 despite what Moshe said, the people couldn't handle it, right? People cannot handle it. Uh, on the other hand, when um, you know when the people were in the right mood, they could take them on, and they did take them on. They did take them on, and it turns out, by the way, that they were talking lying. Like I said, Rachel Hazona said they were lying. You know, they were faking it out. They're putting on a, a a front as if they were 
super powerful, and really their own um, uh, courage had failed. Had the Jews pushed a little bit farther, they would have collapsed like a house of cards. That's what it sounds like from Rechavism. So, whichever case it is, you do see that um, the mentality, the morale, is of such importance when it comes to war. Uh, I conclude by considering the example of Amos' case of France in World War One versus World War Two. One second. So, um, what was I just saying? Yeah. I'm talking about the French. If you know the history, in World War One, they bled to death. But they kept the Germans back. There was a famous slogan, they will not pass. We won't let the French pass ever done. In Il ne passeront pas. Um, and like I say, the French, by the way, the French fought the First World War in a very dumb way. They lost a, a, a huge amount of un, unnecessary casualties, etc., etc. Nevertheless, they held stark. Now, let's look at World War Two. The French uh, collapsed in a minute. In the Blitzkrieg of May 1940, they went down in one minute to the German panzers. What happened? Why didn't they fight like... Uh, like, like, like lions again. You see, Hitler had psyched him out. If you read the William Shire book about the rise and fall of the Third Republic or something like that, or Third Reich, I forget, when I was a kid, uh, or read up on it, and you'll see that mentally they they, they were already, uh, what's the right word, pessimistic. You know what I'm And uh, they, they felt like a house of cards. Today people make fun of the French, you know, they all, which is not true. In history, they fought usually pretty well, but in World War Two they didn't. Uh, so it's all in the mind. It's all in the mind. So we should take from uh, Parashat Shlach the importance of the morale factor, right? Um, importance of putting up a, a, a strong face against uh, the enemies who they put up a strong face. Damis is just like General Graham. They're scared too, but they are better liars than we are. Uh, with that, silver note, I wish everybody a good job. I want to thank once again the Goldbergs for sponsoring this and the next one this week. It's greatly appreciated. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.